We like doing obituaries on this program, something that's not too common in radio, but we think the passing of certain people should be noted. And uh, topping our list in this segment today would be Isaac Hayes, who won an Oscar for the theme from Shaft, with which we just began. Isaac Hayes was described as a man who helped define the glories and excesses of soul music in the early 1970s. Passed away a couple weeks back at age 65. It's noted that his career stretched far beyond uh, soundtracks. For much of the 60s and into the 70s, he was one of the principal songwriters and performers for Stax Records, the trailblazing Memphis R&B label. Wrote quite a few songs starting when he was like uh, 21 years of age. Uh, he wrote Soul Man, also Hold On, I'm Coming for Sam and Dave. Soul Man was later given a retread by uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi portraying the Blues Brothers. Eleven years ago, his career revived when he began playing Chef on the horrible cartoon South Park. But uh, he quit that in 2006 because he's a Scientologist and said he'd been offended by an episode that ridiculed Tom Cruise and other prominent Scientologists. But he hasn't completely left the scene. Uh, He has a role in Soul Man, a comedy set for release uh, coming up in November, where he co-starred with Samuel Jackson and the recently departed Bernie Mac. Man that would risk his neck for his brother man. Can you dig it? Also want to note the passing of Gene Upshaw. The legendary Oakland Raider was uh, the uh, the head man of the NFL Players Association. Sports Illustrated noted that uh, he's the only man to play in Super Bowls in three decades. He's the only man to start in championship games in the AFL and the NFL. And he was the most influential black labor leader in America. Also the only athlete to later take the reins of a sports union. Uh, Someone who's not deceased, but uh, we want to talk a a little bit about, is Paul Newman. By uh, by all accounts, Paul Newman is is, uh, stricken with cancer and um, will not last much longer. We therefore like to refer you to Patricia Bosworth's excellent article about Paul Newman in the current edition of Vanity Fair magazine. For me, the most amazing thing about Paul Newman is that, you know, he liked to make salad dressing, and he was pretty good at it. And someone told him, you ought to bottle this stuff, and he did. But when the manufacturers insisted that he put his name on the front of the salad dressing, he decided then, well, that he couldn't in good conscience uh, take the money from this endeavor and donate it to charity. And with the use of his excellent chocolates and candies and salad dressing and such items, which, which are quality, uh, quality in every case, he's now been able to donate $120 million to worthy causes. The article talks about Newman uh, in his younger days, was part of the Actors Studio in New York, and how he would watch uh, Eli Wallach, Ann Jackson, Kim Stanley, and Geraldine Page work on scenes. He said later, I, I learned so much. And by the way, if you missed our interview with Eli Wallach, please go back and check it out. It's, it's one of our favorites. 
It can be found along with our last five years worth of shows on our website, radioparallax.com. The article talks about the work that Paul Newman did for Gene McCarthy back in 1968 and how, uh, how influential that was in advancing uh, McCarthy's battle with Lyndon Johnson. Paul Newman saw his movie stardom as a trap, and he worked to find ways around it to keep fame from corroding his life. The article notes he succeeded beyond measure. One of his greatest achievements has been to set up a camp for children with illnesses and disabilities, and one of the most touching moments of the article mentions that uh, one of the events Newman was at at the camp, um, the mother of one of the little girls spoke to one of his associates and asked if Paul Newman could come over and say hello. Her daughter wanted to tell him something, but couldn't get over to him because she was in a wheelchair. So the head of the camp's board brought uh, Paul Newman over to the little girl, and as he knelt by her wheelchair, she said, For the first time in my life, I have a friend. I've never had a friend before because I've been in a wheelchair most of my life, so kids avoid me. So thank you, Mr. Newman. Thank you for this camp. Now, you know, Paul Newman's the first person to admit he's been a lucky guy. In fact, he's been a remarkably lucky guy his whole life long, to hear his story told. But I'm reminded of Thomas Jefferson's line. Uh, Jefferson once said he's a great believer in luck. and notes that the harder he works, the more of it he has. we got a bunch of people we want to talk about uh, the obituaries of. Robert Mayhew, man who was once Howard Hughes' right-hand man. Charles Wick, a friend of the Reagans, who uh, basically became a head of America's propaganda machine, the U.S. Information Agency. And then the noted investment analyst and philanthropist John Templeton. But instead, I think I want to devote most of the time we have left to the passing of a giant of literature, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. It's especially uh, uh, curious for me that uh, Solzhenitsyn passed away when, uh, when I was in Russia. In its obituary, The Economist magazine noted that Solzhenitsyn was not another Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Often the characters in his books were one-dimensional, the tone sardonic, the details turgid. But the world of secret or semi-secret Soviet labor camps, which, uh, which he uh, unveiled for readers both at home and around the world, um, made him a, an epic figure on the world stage. Solzhenitsyn spent years in Siberian labor camps for the crime of criticizing Stalin in a letter. In his youth, he was reportedly an ardent young communist, a math teacher by training. He reportedly took along a copy of Marx's Das Kapital on his honeymoon. He joined the Red Army after the 1941 Nazi invasion, but by 1945 was arrested for his increasingly anti-Stalinist views. While in what was in essence a slave labor camp, he resolved to oppose what he called communism's malevolent and unyielding nature. His first novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisevich, was published in the USSR in 1962 as part of Nikita Khrushchev's Cold War Thaw with the West. Khrushchev, who had been a protege of Stalin's, had been making an effort for years to uh, demythologize the uh, brutal dictator of the USSR. And uh, Solzhenitsyn's depiction of the bleak existence of a good-natured prison camp inmate was a major success. When Khrushchev was tossed out to be replaced by Leonid Brezhnev, uh, the Soviet authorities were less keen to talk about uh, the excesses of Stalin. In fact, the authorities stepped in and stopped Solzhenitsyn's public readings and confiscated his then-unpublished novels. Now, there'd been a, uh, a burgeoning industry in, in the Soviet Union of uh, people privately publishing and circulating novels. His work, The Gulag Archipelago, a massive dissection of Soviet terror, which 
Former U.S. Ambassador George Kennan called the greatest and most powerful single indictment of a political regime ever to be leveled in modern times. Well, it didn't go over so well with the people in charge. Uh, shortly after its publication, Solzhenitsyn was arrested again and put on a plane. He reportedly was relieved to note it was flying west and not east to Siberia. Solzhenitsyn lived in exile in Vermont uh, for years and, uh, to his astonishment, was actually able to return to Russia following the fall of the Soviet Union. He went back in 1994 and, somewhat curiously, was an early fan of Vladimir Putin. Solzhenitsyn certainly was a bit of a pawn in uh, the Cold War battle of public opinion. Uh, when he came to America, by the way, he, he wasn't so enamored with, uh, with our culture either. He had called detente in the early 70s a sham. He viewed the United States and the West in general as flaccid, morally weak, and cravenly materialistic. And his various diatribes against America and, the, and, and Russia were at times noted to be uh, tainted with paranoia, anti-Semitism, and bigotry. I had, to, I had to laugh when one, uh, one, one person writing an obituary noted that, well, you know, they'd been to his house in Vermont, and he apparently did keep quite a stock of Ben and Jerry's in the freezer. I'd meant to read an excerpt from One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, but uh, was appalled to realize that apparently I loaned it out to someone and they never gave it back, which is why I must again vow to quit lending books out. Talking about the passing of Solzhenitsyn, The Economist magazine had a very interesting article on Russian intellectuals, noting that the word intelligentsia is actually a Russian construction. Apparently, the authoritarian uh, Russians, even, even Stalin himself, realized that sometimes uh, creative people needed a little leeway to operate uh, at, at maximum efficiency. Article noted it was, in fact, it was scientists, uh, physicists particularly, who were, at the, who were at the core of the Soviet intelligentsia as a social phenomenon. Stalin wanted a nuclear bomb and realized that scientists' brains don't work unless you allow them a certain amount of freedom. So they were given that freedom along with some status, uh, more money than most citizens, uh, some equipment they could use, and no distractions. In the viewpoint of The Economist, uh, in, in the West, uh, intellectuals are free to say what they want and can be ignored by all, which they often are. Whereas in Russia, there's a long tradition of nurturing its intellectuals, who are then basically caged to serve the interests of the state. They're allowed to have intellectual freedom as long as it stays within certain confines. Although, personally, I'm not so sure there's a, a big difference between uh, America and Russia on this one. Even Alexis de Tocqueville noted in the 1830s that in America, once a consensus is reached on various views, woe to the person who strays. We do our best uh, to try and stray a little bit on this show every week, and, and, I, and I hope that's uh, to good end. We are just about out of time. You know, I have to admit at this point, I didn't finish my stories about Russia and Europe and all that, and there's so much more to tell, but I guess what I'm going to do is just uh, harken back to the moment when I was bike riding right before I cracked my ribs. And my pals, the British boys, uh, David Matthews, started singing Mad Dogs and Englishmen Go Out in the Noonday Sun. Because on the kind of muggy, hot August day, it didn't really make a lot of sense to be pedaling a, a mountain bike. So let's go out with Noel Coward doing his own rendition of Mad Dogs and Englishmen. In tropical climes there are certain times of day 
when all the citizens retire to take their clothes off and perspire. It's one of those rules the greatest fools obey, because the sun is far too sultry and one must avoid its ultraviolet ray. All right, uh, in the month of September, we're going to be talking probably about uh, the immortal Bill Walsh. We're going to be talking to the authors of this excellent new book, Trick or Treat, uh, outlining what medical treatments are of value and which ones are not. And we're also going to talk uh, to the author of 1,000 Recordings You Should Hear Before You Die. And finally, we're looking forward to covering the Biodiversity and Agriculture Seminar that will be taking place at UC Davis between September 14th and 18th. Should be a wonderful extension of our talk with Peter Pringle about Nikolai Vavilov a few weeks back. The keynote addresses by Jared Diamond and Gary and Professor Gary Nabin. And Dr. Nabin's article is titled, A Journey to the Origins of Food, Retracing Vavilov's Footsteps Through the Centers of Food Diversity. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time. When the white man rides, every native hides in glee. Because the simple creatures hope he will impale his solar topi on a tree. It seems such a shame when the English claim the earth that they give rise to such hilarity and mirth. <laughs> <laughs> Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. The toughest Burmese bandit can never understand it. In Rangoon, the heat of noon is just what the natives shun. They put the Scotch or eye down and lie down. In a jungle town where the sun beats down to the rage of man and beast, the English garb of the English Saab merely gets a bit more creased. In Bangkok, at twelve o'clock, they foam at the mouth and run. But mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. The smallest melee rabbit deplores this foolish habit. In Hong Kong, they strike a gong and fire off an noonday gun to reprimand each inmate who's in late. In the mangrove swamps by the python rumps, there is peace from twelve to two. Even caribous lie around and snooze, for there's nothing else to do. In Bengal, to move at all is seldom, if ever, done. But mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday, 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 out in the midday sun.